The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. We are following breaking news out of Texas, where authorities believe they have in custody the man accused of killing five of his neighbors with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Officials will be holding a press conference later this hour, and we will, of course, bring you any details we learn later this hour. But first, most Americans have spent at least some of their life living paycheck to paycheck, not knowing how or even if they will be able to pay their bills each month. And now, that is not just Americans, it is also the country America itself. The entire federal government is one month from being out of cash. And that is not an exaggeration. We are already four months past the debt limit. The Treasury has been doing creative accounting to move money around since then. And now the Treasury is warning that the government of the United States could truly, truly be broke by June 1st. If Republicans in Congress do not raise the debt ceiling in the next 30 days, the global economy could collapse. So given the stakes here, this should be a relatively straightforward fix, because, I mean, who would want who would want to use the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge? Hopefully we're in good shape on the debt ceiling. The de- I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. Can't imagine who who would who would who would want Turns out the entire Republican Party. Now, despite the fact that the GOP raised the debt ceiling under President Trump, they raised it three times. Every time Republicans are in control of Congress and there is a Democrat in the White House, the raising of the debt ceiling becomes a drama. It becomes a crisis. Now, you might think that doing something so reckless would hurt them politically. But here is the thing. Republicans have a neat little trick. They pretend they have nothing to do with it. Their extreme policies made our economy a mess. Now they refuse to responsibly raise the debt ceiling. Instead of negotiating common sense solutions, they're putting the American economy in crisis. Shame on liberals in Congress. Tell them to stop playing partisan games. That ad, which was made by the House Republican-aligned American Action Network, that ad is part of the group's new six-figure ad buy, and it's running commercials like those in the districts of 11 vulnerable House Democrats. And I know, to anyone who has been following the debt ceiling fights over the past decade, that ad feels like madness. It feels like you have been plunged into opposite land. But the GOP gaslighting seems to be working. This is a new poll from Morning Consult and Politico. It shows that most voters, 37 percent, would blame both parties equally if the U.S. defaulted on its national debt. Only 24 percent of voters would blame Republicans for a crisis that is literally manufactured by Republicans. And 30 percent of voters would blame Democrats. The gaslighting does not end there. Today, we saw a spectacular effort by Republicans to gaslight America when it comes to the recent ethics concerns facing the Supreme Court. Now, you may be thinking, which ethics concerns? Was it the fact that for decades, Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted luxury trips from a Republican billionaire mega donor? 
Was it about how that same billionaire mega donor bought a house from, from Justice Thomas while, while he was on the Supreme Court and Thomas didn't disclose it? A house Thomas's mom still lives in, despite the fact that Thomas does not own it. Or was it about how Thomas didn't recuse himself from cases involving the 2020 election, even though his own wife urged top Trump officials and state lawmakers to overturn the results of that election? Or maybe it was about how Justice Neil Gorsuch failed to disclose that he sold a vacation home to the chief executive of one of the country's biggest law firms, despite that firm frequently having cases before the Supreme Court. I could really go on and on here, but the answer is... It was about all of the above and more. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee held this hearing today to try to talk about ethics and accountability on the high court and suggest some solutions. But rather than get get into all of that, Republicans did this. This is not about trying to upgrade the ability of the court to be more transparent. It's about an effort to destroy the legitimacy of this conservative court. Today's hearing is an excuse to sling more mud at an institution. Today's hearing and the radical left's continued attacks on Justice Thomas and his wife, Jenny, over the last 31 and a half years are part of a sustained, hateful attempt to discredit an honest man. This is all just a thuggish shakedown. Nice Supreme Court you've got there, America. Sure would be a shame if something happened to it. I hope that we don't have to see another assassination attempt. I hope we don't have to have a justice actually killed before this body will take judicial security seriously and stop its attempts to coerce an independent branch of government. The left despises Clarence Thomas. And they do not despise him because he's a conservative. The left despises Clarence Thomas because he is a conservative African-American. This is a political attack directed at a justice they hate. If you just watched the Republicans at today's hearing, you might have left the thinking the real problem here is left-wing dark money and not, for example, the billionaires we actually know for sure have been courting conservative justices for decades. And the thing is, a lot of Americans will only see the Republican side of this. And, and that gaslighting, it works. Back in February, before the latest Clarence Thomas scandals, a poll from The Economist and YouGov showed 62% of Republicans had a favorable opinion of Justice Thomas. Then on April 6th, ProPublica published its huge investigative piece, which detailed all of the luxury trips that that billionaire paid for Justice Thomas, trips he did not disclose. Two days after that, The Economist and YouGov, they ran that poll again. This time, they found 67% of Republicans had a favorable opinion of Clarence Thomas. It went up 5%. Thomas's approval rating also managed to jump 5% with independent voters in that time. Republican spin somehow made Clarence Thomas more popular because he didn't disclose his joyrides with a billionaire. This is madness. So what happens now? Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former Missouri senator and current MSNBC political analyst and the great Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. Lisa, it's clear from that hearing that Republican lawmakers do not particularly care if the Supreme Court has lost the confidence of a great portion of the American public. But shouldn't the justices themselves actually care? Have you been surprised about how the court has reacted to all of this? Yes and no, right? Because 
on one hand, Clarence Thomas's ethical breaches are so serious that you would think that all the other members of the court, if not most of the other members of the court, would be offended by that and want to police themselves before Congress polices them. On the other hand, we've seen through the weaponization of the federal government subcommittee of House Judiciary what happens when congressional oversight runs amok. And remember, they are doing what they're doing now in the name of the January 6th committee. In other words, the Democrats did this. They issued tons of subpoenas while a parallel criminal investigation was going on. We can do that, too. And if I am one of the liberal justices on this court, I might be thinking right now, Congress passing a law demanding ethics reform from us wouldn't be so bad. But what happens when the shoe is on the other foot? Mm, so they're looking down the they're looking what three, four, eight years hence and concerned about what happens if they do let Congress enforce some better oversight onto the dealings of the court. It's a long term institutional concern as opposed to a short term. How do we deal with Clarence sort of a problem? Um, Claire, I, I I would love to get your thoughts about the the performances we saw at this hearing and the latest, I think this just before the hearing, uh, Marsha Blackburn, Senator Marsha Blackburn and nine other Republican senators introduced the Protect Our Supreme Court Justices Act, which would increase the maximum jail time for violating the federal law that prohibits attempts at influencing the decision making process of a judge from one year to five years. Basically, a chilling effect on those who might otherwise potentially call out the behavior of a Supreme Court justice. What is the Republican um, minority in the Senate doing here? Well, they are trying to distract everyone from the real ethical concerns that have surfaced. I mean, let's get real here. We have a man spending $10 million trying to influence public policy in America, and then he gives lavish gifts to the Supreme Court justice who is at the point of the spear in trying to move those policies to the right. And that all happened after Thomas got on the Supreme Court. They weren't friends ahead of time. And, you know, I mean, is his mother living rent free courtesy of this billionaire? The idea that that would be exposed and we would say nothing. We'd all go about our business and go, oh, ho hum, another day at the Supreme Court. Of course, there needs to be a hearing. Of course, there needs to be public awareness of these ethical transgressions. And what the Republicans are doing is shameful. It's their new method of performance politics, where they want to distract you from what is really going on to the shiny object over here, all along the way, trying to really do some damage to the First Amendment, and the right of every American to criticize opinions of the Supreme Court. Lisa, it's also buying into this conceit that Clarence Thomas tried to establish publicly, which is to criticize the court is is uh, it, it, that is behavior that should not be tolerated. Right. And they're weaponizing the notion of criticism and saying, oh, we're going to we're going to crack down on the critics because there is so much criticism flying at the court right now. I, I guess I wonder, you know, to Claire's point about accountability here, you referred to the fact that there hasn't been a groundswell of support among all of the justices for better oversight, right? And we know that Chief Justice Roberts decided not to show up to this hearing. Instead, he sends a letter uh, and a statement on ethics, principles, and practices that was signed by all nine justices. And a lot of folks are saying, why are Ketanji Brown Jackson, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan playing ball with this at all? Do you feel like that calculation on their part could change at all in the coming weeks as this story continues to be, at best, a thorn in the court side? 
The Supreme Court is a little bit like a marriage. Uh-huh. The only people who know what's really going on inside are the nine of them. Yeah. Right? And so on some level, like I said before, I am surprised because I believe there are a number of justices on both sides of the aisle that do their job with integrity and honesty. On the other hand, this is a group of people who believe very strongly that separation of powers demands that the court police itself, lest we have a situation where Congress is in the hands of extremists on both sides and and sort of starts to ride herd on them in ways that are even worse for our democracy and accountability. But I guess I just go back to Michael Ludig, the yep. conservative uh, judge who wrote a letter basically in support of congressional oversight. And he's like, effectively, I'm grossly paraphrasing. He's like, because there's no built-in oversight yeah. in the court, all they have is their reputations because the country has to abide by their judgment. Literally, they are judges. Their judgment matters. And if right. half the country believes they have exercised very poor judgment, even if there is no actual conflict here, the appearance of that conflict is cause for a loss, a loss of fundamental belief in the court. And that's all the court has. That's right. All the court has is its own reputations. And I think, again, thinking through those on the court that don't have ethical problems, I think to the extent that they criticize the court or appear to be out of step with one another, when we see the court sniping at each other publicly, yeah. right, that doesn't do anything for the legitimacy of the court either. Justice Alito recently had told the Wall Street Journal he knew who the leaker was of the Dobbs opinion. While, on the other hand, saying that the court should be beyond reproach, beyond criticism, as you noted, when the court starts sniping at each other or other people that have a stake in its outcomes, that does nothing to shore up Americans' confidence in the court. And that has to be part of the calculus for those who are not the wrongdoers here. I just, I, I am so, I, I, nothing should surprise me at this point, Claire, but the, the degree to which Republicans are not only not entertaining what are legitimate concerns, but brushing them aside and trying to blame Democrats. I have to talk to you about the debt ceiling, the ad that we played for everybody about how the debt ceiling um, looming crisis is the fault of liberal partisans who want to create a manufacture uh, a, a drama for the American public is. And yet that messaging seems to work if you read the polls. Well, I think the polls show that nobody's really sure how this is going to work and who is really to blame, because it is kind of a confusing mess. I've been to this movie. I've seen this movie. I've been in this movie before. I understand what's going on here. The debt ceiling will be raised. Republicans always raise it, as you said, under Republican presidents. And by the way, they spent, the, spent like crazy under Trump. The debt and the deficit went up under Donald Trump and the Republicans who supported him. They supported all of that. So this is phony baloney. The debt ceiling will get raised. There'll be some kind of negotiation on spending that will allow Kevin McCarthy to get a fig leaf to get it through the House. And because I'll tell you what, the political fallout, because the Democrats will figure out a way to get him to vote on a clean debt ceiling. And if the Republicans are seen as blocking it at that moment, there will be serious political fallout for the Republican Party because our economy will go into a tailspin. Can I ask you, Claire? I mean, there's no it also the Republicans will raise it. But also there's no way President Biden is going to let the country go off a cliff. Right. I mean, if you're betting here, he is the person that ultimately is the, the reasonable person in the room in the hostage negotiations. And to me, that seems like a good thing for the country, but also Republicans are going to try and exploit that as far as they can, no? 
Yeah, listen, Kevin McCarthy is driving at a breakneck speed towards the cliff. And and Biden is going to be throwing down the strips of nails to try to get the flat tire to stop him. But make no mistake, let's don't say that Biden is going to save it because McCarthy is the one who's causing it. McCarthy is the one who can save it. And if Biden can't get it done, then it is McCarthy and the Republicans' fault that for the first time in the history of this country, we're going to say to the world, you know, we're just not going to pay our bills. We're just not going to pay our bills. So I really think that Biden will, and by the way, it'll help his political image if he does get a deal, because that's what he ran on, that he could get a deal. So it's really kind of a win-win for Biden. And I think the one who's really in political peril here, and I think he'd admit it if you gave him truth serum, that's <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. Oh, I bet he will. Behind, who know, who can know what goes on in Kevin McCarthy's head? But I tend to agree with you. Claire McCaskill, Lisa Rubin, thank you both for joining me tonight. Thanks, Alex. You bet. We have a lot more to get to this evening, including day one of writers of many of your favorite shows walking off the job. We are going to talk about why they're striking and what comes next. Plus, we have jaw-dropping new testimony in the case of the woman accusing Donald Trump of raping her years ago. What her longtime friend says she heard just minutes after that alleged attack. That's coming up next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. From the moment E. Jean Carroll first sat on the witness stand as part of her civil battery and defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump, Trump's defense lawyers have made it clear that their strategy here is to poke holes, to inject doubt and to undermine E. Jean Carroll's account of how Trump allegedly raped her in a New York City department store in the mid-90s, allegations that Trump has repeatedly denied. As part of that strategy, Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, has been bombarding E. Jean Carroll with questions like, why didn't she scream during the attack? Why didn't she call the police? And why did she instead call a friend? Why didn't she burn the dress she was wearing the day of the assault? Takapina's questions became so aggressive and repetitive that the federal judge presiding over the case, a, a judge named Lewis Kaplan, he had to intervene. Today, during the testimony of Lisa Birnbach, the friend that E. Jean Carroll called immediately after that alleged assault, Trump's lawyers leaned into that strategy once again. They cited Birnbach's past criticism of the former president, and they attempted to frame Birnbach's testimony as politically motivated. Birnbach admitted to criticizing Trump in the past, but she said that criticism didn't take away from what she heard from her friend, E. Jean Carroll, all those years ago. 
Quote, E. Jean said to me many times, he pulled down my tights. He pulled down my tights. Almost like she couldn't believe it. She was still processing what had just happened to her. Question, how did she sound? Bernbach, breathless, hyperventilating, emotional. Her voice was doing all kinds of things. Question, what did you say after Miss Carroll described this to you? Bernbach, even though I knew my children didn't know the word, I, I ducked out of the room. My phone was wireless. And I, I said, I, I whispered, Eugene, he raped you. That was not the only shocking account in the courtroom today. A woman named Jessica Leeds testified that Trump groped her in an airplane back in the late 70s. Quote, he was trying to kiss me. He was trying to pull me towards him. He was grabbing my breasts. It was like he had 40 million hands. To Carol's lawyers, this testimony and the testimony of other women, it speaks to the idea that Trump's alleged sexual predation fit a pattern of behavior. And that pattern is precisely what lawyer George Conway had in mind when he bumped into E. Jean Carroll at a party in New York in 2019. He says Carol mentioned she was thinking of suing Trump, to which Conway replied almost instantly, quote, you have a case. Joining us now is that lawyer and columnist, George Conway. George, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. You were there when this idea sort of crystallized in E. Jean Carroll's head that she could go to court with this. Can you talk a little bit about why the pattern was so key in terms of building a case against Trump? Well, it's interesting because my thinking about it had evolved. I hadn't really thought much about all of the sexual assaults or allegations until um, that summer, and some, I saw a thread online where uh, a woman in Massachusetts had put together on Twitter all of the different allegations with all of the different women, like dozens of them. And I thought, that's just, that's incredible because the, the, the similarities yeah. were immense. And it was right around the time, maybe even right after, Jean came out with her book and with the New York Magazine article. And it got me thinking, I, you know, this is this is a pretty strong case, and I wrote an article. I, rest, I originally wanted to make it a Twitter thread, but then somebody said, oh, I'm making an article. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, look, if Republicans believed Juanita Broderick, the woman who made a rape accusation against Bill Clinton, then they better damn well believe uh, E. Jean Carroll, because her, her allegations are supported not only by contemporaneous Witnesses who heard her tell the story within days, if not minutes, five to seven minutes in, in the case of, of, of Lisa Bernbach. And then you've got all the other cases, just the, the enormous number of cases. And one thing we've learned, I mean, I've learned from reading all of the Me Too journalism uh, by uh, Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker and Jody Cantor and her colleague at The New York Times, it, it's like the things that, the thing that, you know, it, it it's the sexual assault is very, very difficult when it's like just two people in a room mm-hmm. and there's nobody else. But the corroboration that you can get from the contemporaneous um, statements where the, uh, the woman shocked goes to a friend and says, I can't believe what just happened to me. And then the, the men are always the, the men who do these things 
do them more than once, yeah. dozens of times, yes. is, as is the case with Donald John Trump. With, with impunity. With uh, impunity, uh, because they think that, the, that they, because it's their sense of entitlement. They think they can, they, that, that they're a star and they can do it. Yeah, uh, and, use, and so which was articulated by the, right. you know, soon to be president in the Access Absolutely. Hollywood take, right? right. Like the, 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 he lays out the playbook right. and apparently, allegedly, was executing on it for decades. Right. It, was one, it was the one moment where Donald Trump told the truth. What, if you were, I mean, <laughs> I, well, I, I won't get into, I mean, the the <laughs> the defense that his team is mounting, which is this kind of relentless barrage of yeah. questions meant to get at the fine details of the story in an effort to undermine its veracity in the case of Eugene Carroll, or say it was politically motivated on the part of Lisa Bernbach. I mean, what do you make of that, given what it sounds like the strength of the argument from the prosecution? Well, I, it, there is a legitimate way in a very delicate way that lawyers can cross-examine victims or alleged victims of sexual assault. And, and, you, and they have an obligation to do it as a matter of, of, of their professional responsibility. But you have to do it very carefully and keep to the facts. I remember watching once, Court TV used to do instructional videos, Roy um, Black, the famous Miami criminal defense lawyer, did this really astonishingly good cross-examination of the complainant in the William Kennedy Smith case. Mm. And he showed how you do it. You do it respectfully, you do it kindly, and you just go through, okay, this happened, and this happened, and you stack the things that sort of weigh against the, the, the complainant's story. And Takapina did some of that, from what I can tell from reading the live tweeting and, and some of the transcript. Um, but he did it in a much kind of a ham-fisted way. Yeah. And I mean, and stuff like to the to the to the consternation uh, of the judge. Yeah. I mean, it's it's okay to ask, Okay, you didn't call such and so you didn't call your mother. You didn't call the police. You didn't do it just very respectfully to go through that. You went back to Borgdorf. That's all. Those are all legitimate questions that should be. and, and, And it's appropriate to present that to the jury. But stuff like. Go, you know, being, if you're, if you're, the, I don't know what the tone was because I wasn't there, uh, the way Lisa was. But uh, if, if you're asking questions like, oh, you didn't cry on TV, but you cried here. Yeah. That, well, that, badgering, that's just, relentless, that's just disrespectful I mean, it's, questions. It's absurd. And I just think it would backfire in front of a jury. Um, George, you are a lawyer, but you were also an outspoken critic of this president. And I just so wonder. I'm told. <laughs> some of the evidence, the evidence reflects that. The now. evidence reflects that, Your <laughs> Honor. Um, the, the fact of the matter is Trump's numbers have never been higher. And there is just this weird thing unfolding, which is the guy who is the front runner in the Republican nomination could have a summer of criminal either trials or criminal indictments um, being charged against him. And I wonder what, you know, does the Trump phenomenon supersede legal reality? How how and why is he stronger? Does any of this weaken his standing with the public? Well, it weakens his standing, I think, with the normal public, the center, the, the center of the electorate who can go either way. I think it strengthens him among his base because they, you know, they have basically dug themselves a bunker where they are refusing to listen to and, and give any credence to anything negative about, about Donald Trump. Because once you let that little doubt in that Maybe he's not a nice guy. Maybe he doesn't always tell the truth. You begin to realize you, you have to admit 
you, you start losing the ability mm-hmm. to deny reality. And I think that's what, that's what happened. They don't want to admit they're wrong. And so I think four things are going to basically happen is, as, 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 as uh, in the next 18 months. One is he's going to be indicted two or three more times. Mm-hmm. Second is I think that he is going to get the nomination anyway, because I just don't think, I think the, the system is set up so that the person who is the front runner and has a plurality of the vote even if he doesn't get the majority of the votes, although he seems to be able to do that right now, according to the polls, um, will get the nomination. The rules are stacked in their favor. The third is, I think he's going to foment violence. I think we've seen from his truth social posts, we've seen from his posts about this case, he wants to intimidate anybody who speaks out against him. He wants to encourage people to believe that he is persecuted. And he is, you know, if, if there's violence that results, he's going to say, oh, these are the things that happen, which is what he said yeah. on January 6th. And the last thing is, and I'm hopeful that I think he will lose the general election precisely because I think it's going to exhaust the American public uh, that, you know, and, and, and having a president. The American public is pretty tired just speaking on I, behalf I, of some friends. Even, I know. And even even some Republicans are pretty tired. They, they, you know, they some of them would like to see him just, you know, roll off into the sunset and never come back from Scotland or whatever. Um, but they, they don't have the physical courage or the moral courage to say that. The fortitude to say that. I mean, some people do, though, right? I don't know. Heroes? Here, anybody? George Conway. Thank you. Thank you for making time. Great to see you. We have still more to come tonight, including why some of your favorite television shows are going dark tonight. Not this one, though. That's coming up next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. It was 2007, and TV and film writers across the country had just gone on strike. It was a huge strike, and it created a dilemma for all the other creative people who work with writers, people like actors and directors and late-night hosts who had to get on the air that night in front of a live audience without any writers, which is how we got this incredible moment with Conan O'Brien filling airtime on live TV by spinning his wedding ring. Here we go. Uh, Susie, are you ready to time this? We're going for 41 seconds. If we do it, this will be television history. Here we go. And that's a good spin. That's a good spin. Oh, yeah. No, no. 
Susie Sinamora, what was the time on that spin? That looked like a good spin to me. 36 seconds. <laughs> Ultimate indignity. Yes. <clears throat> Trust me, there's time to do it again. <laughs> let's not, let's not be in a rush to do it right away. That is the stuff of TV legends. The 2007 writer's strike lasted 100 days, during which time Conan O'Brien personally paid the salaries of 75 writers on his show to help, make, help them make ends meet. Now, today, for the first time in 15 years, the union representing over 11,000 scripted TV and film writers across the country has once again gone on strike. And just like last time, there is a lot of support for this union. Today, late-night legend Jay Leno went to the picket line to show his support and hand out donuts to striking writers. This was Stephen Colbert last night announcing that his show would go dark during the strike. Everybody, including myself, hopes both sides reach a deal. But I also think that the writers' demands are not unreasonable. I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. They're the reason. Unions. This is true. Unions are the reason we have weekends. And by extension, why we have TGI Fridays. So the next time you enjoy a whiskey-glazed Blaze Burger, you thank a union. Now, you heard Stephen Colbert say there that he hopes both sides reach a deal. On one side of this fight is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. It represents most of the major TV and film studios. And I should mention here that Comcast, the corporation that owns MSNBC, is one of the companies represented by that group. On the other side is the Writers Guild of America. It represents all of the TV and film writers in their negotiations with those studios. The Writers Guild negotiates one big contract with all the studios, and that contract sets basic pay and work standards for writers across the country. I should also mention that the Writers Guild of America represents workers right here at MSNBC, including most of the staff on this show. But MSNBC workers are not covered by the same contract as scripted film and TV workers, which is why my producers are not on strike right, strike right now, and which is why I'm not sitting here spinning any of my various jewelry. Okay, now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, this is why the writers are on strike. In the last 15 years since the writer's strike in 2007, the TV and film industry has changed dramatically which you probably know. The rise of streamers like Netflix and Apple TV and Disney Plus has disrupted the industry bigly. And that has changed the way writers get compensated also bigly. Production companies are relying on smaller teams of writers to pump out more content. The Writers Guild claims that film and TV writers are now making 23% less than what they were a decade ago, thanks in large part to streaming. So now the writers are demanding pay and working conditions that correspond to this new digital age. This is what the Writers Guild said in a statement today. The company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce, and their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing. The studios released their own statement, saying they remain united in their desire to reach a deal that is mutually beneficial to writers and the health and longevity of the industry. 
So yes, this is a story about movies and TV shows and whether or not your favorite programs will be back this fall. But it is also a story about the ways that major technological shifts in society have changed the way arts and culture and even journalism get made, and not always for the better. My next guest has just written a book. It is a very timely book about this very phenomenon, and you are going to want to stick around for that conversation, which is right after the break. Stay with us. In July of 2019, President Trump convened about 200 conservative social media stars for a summit at the White House. Charlie Kirk was there, and so was James O'Keefe and Diamond and Silk. They weren't White House reporters, but these people were Trump's press corps. You communicate directly with our citizens without having to go through the fake news filter. It's very simple. Together, you reach more people than any television broadcast network by far, not even close. White House estimated that those social media stars had an estimated reach of 100 million people. That is nearly a third of the American population, a strong 30 percent of the population that to this day remains loyal to Trump and probably consumes mostly right wing media. But back in the day, back just a decade earlier, it wasn't really like this. As Ben Smith describes in his new book, big media sites like Gawker and The Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, they use their platforms to generate clicks and traffic. They weren't necessarily in the pursuit of advancing one candidate or ideology. They were there to monetize the attention of an audience. As editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News from 2011 to 2020, Smith helped establish the site's bonafide news department. But even from that perch... He admits he didn't see how right-wing figures would later co-opt the blogging and social media structures that some had once believed would further progressive causes. Smith writes, I certainly hadn't realized the extent to which the right-wing populism always seemed to be sitting just down the white IKEA table from this progressive Internet scene, looking over its shoulder, learning its lessons. Gasoline can create useful energy, but it can also simply burn. And by 2023, it seemed clear that the power of this new social energy had been to destroy any institution from the media to the political establishment that it touched. Those of us who work in media, politics and technology are largely concerned now with figuring out how to hold these failing institutions together or to build new ones that are resistant to the forces we helped unleash. Joining us now is the man, the author himself, Ben Smith, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore and author of this new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral, which is out today. Ben, congratulations on this book. I don't know when you had time to write it, um, but you're prolific in many senses of the word. I guess I was very much struck by, I'm not going to call it a mea culpa, but this idea that, you know, in this period of great innovation and, you know, building new sites and things that had never existed before and the optimism inherent in that, something dark was afoot, which is the the sort of keys, giving giving another set of people the keys, um, the Rosetta Stone, if you will, to building sites and learning about audiences, which would later um, be bastardized for totally partisan ideological purposes. Yeah. And th- thanks for having me on and for the kind words. And I mean, I do think, you know, I started writing the book because it felt like this moment in some sense was coming to an end. I want to mm-hmm. kind of go back and just like figure it out what was this yeah. thing we all we all lived through. And 
I think the thing that surprised me most was going back and seeing that there was this, you know, this early internet scene where, um, it, to some degree, the explicit goal was to elect Barack Obama. For the Huffington Post, that was part of the point, you know, and, and it felt, and everyone just took for granted in that world that these were young, these were college kids, young people, newly on the internet, they were Democrats. Right. Barack Obama visited Facebook. It was sort of went without saying that Facebook was like a democratic institution. Um, and, but when you look and back, then. you know, and, and I think everybody thought, well, the, the, the high point of this whole world, this whole new digital world is the election of Barack Obama. And, you know, in fact, look back and the high point, the crowning achievement of this sort of new social media world is the election of Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Absolutely. You know, and it's if you look at the figures who were present at the early in, in these sites like Gavin McInnes, who, of course, goes on to found the Proud Boys. He's one of the, co- the co-founders of Vice, which is anything but a sort yeah, of ev- radical right-wing publication. Right. Right? Everywhere you look, and, and this was sort of, this was kind of came to me as a surprise as I was just reporting out all the characters of this early yeah. scene that, you know, at BuzzFeed, where I, where I later worked, um, the guy who founded 4chan was working out of that office. The um, Andrew Breitbart, was a, who was later the sort of key sort of in part of inventor of these new culture wars was a co-founder of Huffington Post as well. Um, Gavin McInnes, as you say, a pr- leading proud boy was at Vice. Um, Steve Bannon kind of came out, to, came in to check out Huffington Post and, and learn from it. And, you know, and then I, and, and, and in some ways I think they were, they adopted the lessons more fully mm-hmm. than, than anybody on than most people on the left. They were mo- most interested in just tearing down these institutions and yeah. actually, at some point, at one point, I went to see Bannon in 2016 in Trump Tower, and I was then the editor of BuzzFeed, and he was just totally puzzled at, at why hadn't BuzzFeed gone all in for Bernie Sanders the way he had for Trump. You know, not because he loved Bernie Sanders per se, but just because that's where the traffic was. Why not just follow the heat wherever it leads? Do you? I mean, and certainly Bannon has built a, a stunning amount of grift on the back of like his, his uh, intellectual properties, if you will. But has it? What, your sense is that it was always for the traffic. It was always for the money. It was sort of an un, uh, a part of the market that did not have an adequate response. And so they filled that gap. It wasn't necessarily an ideological drive that led these folks to ultimately found the institutions that they'd created. You know, I think these things are all tied up together. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's quite that simple, but I do think that there were these new tools that turned out to be just perfect for serving this very angry moment. I mean, Facebook in particular, you know, it was, it was this great tool, you know, for, for spreading these, you know, these, this new real angry energy. And then as Facebook, I think started to get freaked out by it and adjusted to it and started tweaking its dials to say, wait, wait, we don't want people sharing fake stories about Hillary Clinton body doubles. We want it to be, we want like more meaningful stories that people engage with. And then what that would be was like a Donald Trump meme and you replying, kill yourself in the comments. And then that being shared to everybody because the algorithm has decided that you are deeply engaged. (laughs) You know, it was sort of a combination of, like, I think the real politics of how people felt and a system that was sort of designed to amplify what's probably kind of worst in us. Why do you think that the people who own these sites, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or to some degree Elon Musk, uh, even Jonah Peretti, are so reluctant to adopt the an- the mantle of publishers because they have become the purveyors of information and there's just this deep, like, abiding resistance to really embracing that. I, it's a headache, for sure, but the reality is, you know, Facebook is a, it's an information, it's not a, it's not just a website, it's not just a connect people. It's where people get their information. The same is true for Twitter. The, the, the efforts to kind of figure out how to make 
Twitter responsible have been so fraught, so ham-handed. I won't even comment about what Musk is doing, but there seems to be a deep-seated cultural, like, it's antithetical to who these guys are. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think, I mean, I think that to some degree, you know, it's nice to have free content rather than content you pay for. If you're a business, yeah. you get to keep all the money. So some of it is commercial, but some of it, as you say, like is ideological. And not, I don't mean left-right ideological. I mean this sense that w- that the we want we should we can do away with all the old institutions, the old East Coast media, and if we just sort of throw it open to the crowd, they'll replace it with something better. It's actually kind of utopian, I think. And if you and if you go back and read things from the early 2000s, which I'm sure we were probably both writing yeah. as well, you know, there was a sense of like, wow, this is going to be this wide open world. It's going to overthrow like a corrupt establishment media that had gotten the Iraq war so wrong. There's a lot of like real optimism, I think for good reason. But, you know, at some point, I think they were really unable to let go of that fantasy. And I think when you look at the trajectory of those businesses now, of those sites now, like, I don't think it was a good business decision, among other things. Yeah. And now we have, you know, BuzzFeed is shuttering. BuzzFeed News is shuttering. Vice is maybe filing for bankruptcy. It's a very important time to be writing something like this. It's also, I don't know, it's kind of a depressing moment to kind of take stock of what just happened to the country and what happened to the internet in the last 20, well, 15 years. Yeah, it's a a very strange moment. It was just really a a trip to go back and see how we all thought about it yes. then and, and how it turned out. And I think how people could have made different decisions along the way. And we have known each other for quite some of that the, time, the, the my whole friend. whole time, yeah. Congratulations on the book, Ben Smith. The book is Traffic. Thank you for your time, buddy. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. That's it for us. We'll see you tomorrow. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.